Welcome to Cancria, home of Canada's queer medium. My name is Luke Smith. And my name is Sebastian. A little later on, we'll be interviewing the uh, researchers behind the Community-Based Research Centre and their Our Health survey. Now, Mm -hmm. we did the interview previously in the day. Yes. But I wanted to kick off with a pretty neat um, story. Okay. Eric Bourne and Stephen Carpenter, you probably don't know who they are. They are two gay men. They were a same-sex okay. couple. And okay. they met on the RFA Sir Percival, um, which is an auxiliary fleet vehicle with the, the British Navy. And they have just been married. So far, you're thinking, okay, who are these people? Why should I care? Uh, they've just been uh, married in the British Antarctic Territory. They are the first ever same-sex couple to be married in the British Antarctic mm-hmm. territory. But these two uh, very much love each other. They very yep. much love Antarctica. And they have uh, they have the coordinates for Antarctica engraved in the wedding bands, which is okay. super sweet. Um, I don't know. Wedding in Antarctica, that, my friends, is a destination wedding. But yeah, no, the, it's... Because before we started recording, you told me about this. They started racking their brains. I'm pretty sure there's now been a same-sex wedding on every continent. So, uh, including Pacifica. So it's, yeah, no, the, uh, we have a complete set now. Yeah. It's, it's just a nice, fun story. The, yeah. uh, the ship captain is the one that married them. There's about 30 service folks who were on the ship that, you know, attended. Mm-hmm. If you were able to have a destination wedding, Antarctica excluded, uh, yes. where would you go? My neighbor's going to um, Puerto Revelta, Puerto Vallerta. I think. Puerto Verata. Yeah. We're both getting it wrong. Yeah. Uh, Well, the thing about destination weddings is basically if you have a destination wedding, what you're saying to the world is we don't care if any of you join us because they can be expensive. So, I mean, basically you're asking uh, if I were to elope, where would I elope to for a wedding? Uh, Probably somewhere like pastoral, like, I don't know, Northern Italy or uh, Ireland. Maybe or the, the south of France. I have seen amazing footage of outer Mongolia. The uh, the eastern Mongol steppes actually look really beautiful. Uh, well, your your destination wedding might just be you and whoever you're marrying. If you're marrying in outer Mongolia, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. You know, I love you, Sebastian, but I don't think I am going to book a trip to outer Mongolia. Yeah, uh, no, if I'm having a wedding anywhere other than in Canada, it's because I don't care if anyone else is there or not. Yeah. Because I'm 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 I know what destination weddings can do, unless you're from a rich family or something. So we know that we're broadcast coast to coast to coast to coast. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was a really interesting uh website that has come up, queervote.ca. Um it is currently really geared towards the Ontario provincial legislation. And really interestingly, is very heavily dominated by Ottawa-based LGBT organizations, you know, Mm. Capital Pride, you know, Make Sense, Capital Rainbow Refuge, uh, the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity, which is based Mm -hmm. in Ottawa, Mm -hmm. um, Max Ottawa, which is a men's health clinic. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of them. We do have the the heavy hitters, the 519 Community Centre, the network, uh, the... Egal Canada, a big, big Canadian organization. So, but I mean, it's really 
it, but I was a bit surprised at how Ottawa focused it is. I'm not. I mean, a lot of places have their headquarters here. Like Eagle Canada has, actually, I think their headquarters is in Toronto, but one of their larger branches is here. Uh, the Canadian AIDS network is, is um, out of Ottawa. I don't know if they're on that list, but I mean, that's, that's another thing. And there's a few other organizations that have their headquarters here. And if it's not their headquarters, it'll just be one of their larger branches because that way they get access to the feds. They get access to the politics. They get access to the, the grant writers. Like they you get a lot of access to um, sort of political power if you have an office in Ottawa. So, I mean, it doesn't really surprise me that a lot of these offices are either based here or they have a significant portion of their organization here. Well, we know that we're broadcast all over the country, not just in Ontario. So far, about 150 have already signed on to this pledge, Mm -hmm. which is essentially saying, I'm a resident of Ontario, we'd like you to support 2SLGBT communities. But what I find interesting and what I think is actually applicable nationwide is that this pledge has essentially taken the recent uh, promises that have been fulfilled by mm-hmm. the federal liberals and are trying to get them rolled out provincially. So the big things they're asking for is the creation of a 2S LGBTQI secretariat and an action plan, um, coverage of uh, gender-affirming healthcare, which is distinctly a provincial priority, and also a 25 million funding program for 2S LGBTQ services. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because the feds created a secretariat. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's a, it's a body in the government where all they really do is make sure that the government as a whole mm-hmm. is taking into account LGBT folks, you know, and in various departments. And uh, they've been pretty, you know, pretty effective. Mm-hmm. And the action plan is something that they're releasing soon. I don't know, Sebastian, what about I jump into a song? But do you think that taking this, this approach, which seems to have worked federally, mm-hmm. and, and asking the provinces to roll out something similar, yep. you know, is this a tried and trust, tested and now we can roll it out locally? What, what are your thoughts? Well, we've looked into the, the federal level before. Actually, we've interviewed people from the office as well. It, it seems to be sort of a, a blend. And I, I, I daren't say the quantity of each blend because I don't know all of the details, but we have been able to show that they've been a very good, they, they've been excellent for research. That, that is probably their, their strongest suit so far. They've done a fair deal of advocacy. And some of what they do, honestly, is just talk. Like they, they do a bit of sort of marketing wank and you listen to them and you're like, well, that's nice, but what's, where's the force behind that? You know, where's the energy, where's the political will behind that? But they they do other things as well, where it's like, oh, they really brought down the hammer on that issue. So it's, it's really mixed. Um, and I think that uh, it's been overall very positive and more effective than not. So I definitely say at the provincial level, even if just for the research and for the advocacy, I think those two issues alone, everything else excluded, those two issues alone make it worthwhile. Absolutely. All right. We're jumping into Clarity by The Delicate. And after that is our interview with CBRC. We will be back just Sparkles rise, I lift and sink in. 
Welcome back to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. This is the interview that I have been looking forward to for the past week because uh, much like a cat, the curiosity will kill me. Uh, Sebastian, we are joined by two incredible people. Uh, we mm -hmm. have, uh, I mean, it's, I want to make sure I'm getting everyone's, everyone's titles correct. So uh, Nathan Lutrowski, you are the principal investigator for the project that we're gonna talk about and the research director at uh, CBRC. Um, and we are also joined by uh, Anu Radha, who is the CBRC's 2S LGBTQQIA plus chronic health research manager. Um, I believe I've got those, those uh, correct. I'm seeing some thumbs up. Um, <laughs> so for our listeners sake, I was really excited when this email came out and Sebastian knows how excited we get when when there are surveys. Oh yes, um, and and health surveys. Oh yes. So you're you're launching our health, the Canada wide two S LGBTQQIA plus uh, health survey, 
Um, do either of you want to just very quickly for our listeners explain what the survey is? Like why, why were two random gay guys on the radio get excited about this survey? Yeah, I mean, we hope lots of people get excited about the survey. This is a survey for anyone and everyone in our communities, whether you're two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, or some other um, sexual and gender marginalized person um, across the whole entire country of Canada. So this is our, everyone's opportunity to participate in helping us understand what is the current state of health and wellness, of community connection, of during sociality, of um, during experiences with COVID, um, experiences with chronic health. The survey is broad ranging, but it really gives us a chance to say with a lot of data about what's going on in our communities. I know that uh, myself and Sebastian, and I'm sure in, you know, over a glass of wine, most of our listeners have had a conversation about the impact that this pandemic has had. It's, you know, sometimes it's hard to see the wood for the trees that whilst we're in the middle of it, understanding the scale and the impact has been quite monumental. Um, you know, I recently saw a study coming out of, uh, let me just see, the Department of Family Sciences at the University of Maryland. And that study essentially said that, you know, there is a disparity in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on different sexual identities. I think in particular, they found that it really affected bisexual folks. Um, and I think this echoes what we're seeing elsewhere, that COVID has... Dis, you know, disproportionately impacted those who are more vulnerable in various ways. Mm -hmm. um, is that something that you've seen? Is that something that you expect to come through in this survey? I mean, I think we can probably say with a certainty that our communities have been affected by the pandemic. There, there is a little bit of data out there already in terms of what people have experienced in Canada. And I think some of the main conversations have been around 2SLGBTQQIA plus youth, no matter where they are uh, in Canada, because of this shift to the way that learning happened and because sometimes the home or residence environment isn't necessarily the safest. But we know from some early data, there's been impacts on people's economic security. There's been impacts in access to healthcare broadly, which is already a problem in our communities. And then access to gender affirming care, which was considered non-essential by many healthcare authorities. So we, we already know that there's been an impact, but what we're anticipating through our work is to be able to get to that nuance a little bit more and to understand within our community, like what have people experienced differently across geography, across the distinctions in their social identity or their experience, um, and even actually across age, I think that'll make a difference too. You have any uh, uh, pre-pandemic data that you can sort of compare it against to say like, is this a snapshot? Is this, uh, is this new? Because I know that one of the things they found in the States, they were looking at the impact of COVID on the, the Black community. What they found was that a lot of it really just came down to uh, it being class-based because they, they were finding that middle and upper class Black folks are being affected far less than a lot of the, the data that they were finding. Uh, I'm not going to say it didn't touch them at all because there's issues about vitamin D absorption, but broadly speaking, it, it was uh, class was a better stand-in than than ethnicity or race. But that doesn't change the fact that black people were disproportionately affected. It didn't mean it wasn't worth looking into providing extra services or going into certain communities more than others. It just meant that the ultimate cause versus how you approach it, it was kind of 
I mean, it's complicated. Everything's complicated. Everything's interlaced, right? You know, uh, uh, gender and sexuality and, and income are not distinct, unfortunately. So, I mean, is there like a, a pre-pandemic thing that you can compare to? Are you comparing to various other factors? Uh, uh, what is the scale is basically what I'm, I'm looking at here. Yeah. I, so I think what's really the two things are stand out there as, as real important to me, one of which is our approach to thinking about how our community's health is shaped. And I mean, we know this as people living during as queer, trans, two-spirit people, that during our social lives shape so much of what we experience and how we experience it. And that it is about income, it is about racism, it is about classism, during it's about ableism, it's about so many different things. And during that's really our approach to thinking about this is it's not really what's about what's right or wrong with us as individuals, but so much the social environment that we live in and how that structures our access to healthcare, our access to COVID testing, whether we're able to get appropriate types of care for the, the things that we have going on in our lives. So that's the first piece for sure, is that our approach is really thinking about what's often talked about as social determinants of health. So that's a really key framework for us. And then to your point around data, I mean, to be honest, this study is so overneeded in Canada. It's been a long time coming for us to have a large open community health survey specifically about our entire community. There are very sparse government data um, on our communities. And there's reasons for that. We have a troubled history and ongoing history with governments and how we are treated. Um, mm. And so where there are data, it's often very little and we're a small part of the overall society. So that's one challenge. For researchers like myself, journeyman and working with groups like CBRC, it's really thinking about how do we then create our own data to fill this gap? And that's what this study is about. It's about filling this gap that's existed for far too long so that we can have some sense of uh, where we are now, but also what happens in the future. There are some data we can look back to. During CBRC has been running for 20 years, um, surveys with gay, bisexual, queer men. Um, during, so there's some comparisons that we can make over time. But I think we also need to recognize that COVID is one pandemic and during one situation that we're living through now. Um, during our communities have been strongly affected by HIV and AIDS over the past several decades. There's issues with homelessness, issues with toxic drug supply. And there are so many different things that are going on. So we have to start. And this is really our start to say, everyone and anyone in the community, come do the study, share it with your friends, with your partners, and let's get a sense of what's going on for our, for everyone. Yeah, I am. Oh, oh sorry, you, you go. I was just gonna say, I'm gonna push back a little bit on, on the, the idea that maybe COVID's impact is tied more to class, I think how folks end up in vulnerable situations is tied to a lot of, uh, a lot more factors. Did I freeze? You did, yeah. I did, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> Give me a second for my computer to, to catch up with me. Um, but yeah, essentially I was just pushing back on, on that a little bit. Uh, you know, I think Nathan, you mentioned something and before we, we dive in on the, the chronic health conditions, because I don't want to zero in on that because your study zeroes in on that. I was looking at the survey, I haven't done it yet because it says I think 30 to 60 minutes to, to get through it. It's not short, um, mm. but it is, you know, that's that's by design. And, uh, you know, I, I believe that, you know, what jumped out at me was there's gonna be questions about physical health, sex life, relationships, caregiving, community connection, mm. uh, you know, experiences of, the experiences of discrimination and violence substance abuse, economics, you know, all of these things, you, you'll get a really interesting picture of the really holistic uh, well-being 
of uh, LGBTQ plus Canadians. And I, for one, am really excited to see what that picture tells at the end of it. You know, I know that, uh, you know, during this pandemic, my social life has been massively impacted by it, you know, um, and there's other elements that, are, that have impacted me. I was really curious to see the, the additional, more nuanced, concentrated look at the chronic health conditions. I'm really inviting those that have chronic health conditions to, to really step forward and, and participate. What was the motivation behind creating that focus within this larger study? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an ongoing piece of work that's been uh, in place at CBRC. So we've been funded by the Public Health Agency of, of Canada, um, you know, through some specific chronic disease, what they call surveillance funding. Um, and we're looking at, you know, how do we actually gather and understand how chronic disease is experienced, how it even shows up in our communities. We actually have pretty much no data. We have tiny little snippets of a few pieces here and there, but not enough to actually give us a comprehensive um, sense of what's happening in our communities. And, and I think it's important to say a few things. So one, we know that like, you know, starting from the first question that two SLGBTQQI plus folks have been impacted by the pandemic in distinct ways that are really difficult to talk about. And, and then the other part that we know is people living with chronic health conditions and disabled people have been impacted by the pandemic in devastating ways. Mm. Um, and then if we think about the, the vast number of folks in our communities who have, you know, multiple identities and are living through intersectional oppressions, including ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, racism, it's important for us to set some priorities there. So I, th I think that's one piece. And the thing is, we want our community members who are experiencing this kind of marginalization, who face even greater barriers in accessing healthcare, for example, um, who face even greater barriers around economic security. This has been the first time we've had a national conversation about disability rates, for example, even though disabled people have been yelling about this for at least 10 years. Mm. So I, th I think there's a, there's we're in an important moment around this. Um, so so I, I think that's like a, a really important part of the conversation. The, I think the other part of it really is like, how are we going to learn about changing the system until we see the folks who are facing um, some of the greatest barriers, unless those folks are telling us what needs to change. Because remember, research is research, but advocacy and kind of community change is what CBRC, and I know Nate for sure, um, that's what we're interested in, actually making change. We don't want to produce things that sit somewhere, and that's not CBRC's approach anyway. Um, but we really do need the change to happen because too many people have been affected in negative ways for too long. Too many people have been forgotten for too long. Yeah, yeah and I think, I mean, to build on that, I like, absolutely agree on all of that. Um, I mean, I think one of the pieces around this is that we know chronic health and COVID have such a strong relationship. So how can we study one without the other? And I think this is really important that we put all of these data together side by side during housing, social connection, discrimination. Like if we don't study all of those things at once, then we're missing part of the story. Um, I think the other part of this is also how our communities have responded. Um, we focus a lot on the hardship, on the impacts and the challenges, but our community is incredibly resilient. We show up and support each other in all kinds of ways. And so this is also a story about some of our strengths and some of 
the ways that we've managed, despite the fact that we haven't been the focus of um, appropriate funding or sufficient services, um, do you know what I mean, et cetera. And so that's really what we're also trying to figure out here too, is what's working well for us and how do we do more of that? Um, because we know that grassroots efforts have kept us alive um, and have kept us well. And so that's really what we wanna try and help advocate for as well. I, before we, we touch on the sort of practical execution of what comes out of this, um, Sebastian, I mean, you you really struggled during the pandemic to be diagnosed as a werewolf um, with lupus. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, I think maybe you can speak to is this is this element of of interest? Is does this surprise you? Are you glad to see it? What are your oh. thoughts? No, nothing here surprises me. So, I mean, to, to give a little bit of context to our listeners and our guests, actually, um, through uh, uh, three, maybe four or five years of being accused of being a hypochondriac, I was underdiagnosed with a common, easy to treat disease that led to me having a heart attack at the age of 23. Uh, and ever since then, I've had, you know, a back and forth with doctors of them accusing me of hypochondria and then others being like, well, you know, it's just a five minute blood test, we could figure it out right now if you want. And just being like, why did not every other doctor do this? So, I mean, when you say it's gonna take 30 to 60 minutes, I have a vague feeling that I'm gonna be that one person who takes 90. Um, but uh, as a result of that, and also coming from a science background, whenever I get into a period of, of questioning something, my instinct is to go on Google Scholar because you can find really amazing stuff on there. Now, of course, I'm doing that as an amateur, not as a professional researcher on these issues and not as a medical doctor. But I would say something that has always frustrated me is what could be, for lack of a better term, called footnote neglect. So I remember some time ago reading, uh, like I've, I've known for quite some time that uh, gastrointestinal disorders disproportionately affect young men aged 18 to 25. You go to a GI ward, it's mostly young men aged 18 to 25. Um, and I remember actually reading a paper that had this footnote saying that, um, in their study, they found that gay and bisexual men had an even higher rate of autoimmune-based GI diseases, and these diseases predated sexual activity. So it just seems to be something in being gay that has nothing to do with any jokes about sticking things up your butt that lead to things like colitis or IBS or celiac disease, that there's some underlying whatever. And it was just like, well, that's an interesting piece of information. Now what? Nothing, because that was a footnote. They were studying something else. They discovered this little piece of information and they just put it on a shelf and then that's that. And I have seen so many medical papers that say the same thing. They discover something about, I don't know, the relationship between dietary potassium and heart conditions and nothing. It's just, oh, that's interesting, put it on the shelf. And I think this kind of thing of, of connecting dots and, and getting people who through their own experience have discovered these footnotes, which have been in the literature sometimes for decades, that no one's done anything with. Like, that's very exciting for me. If anything else, because it's like, well, maybe somebody will actually finally collect all this data into one spot and, and do something with it. So, I mean, that, that's very exciting to me. And I, I, I have no idea what your, your input on any of what I just said is, but I have a, I have a complicated relationship with the, uh, the biomedical world for sure. I mean, first of all, thanks for, for, you know, sharing that um, experience with us, which sounds like it's been really frustrating and oh, yeah. devastating to your actual health and, and your day-to-day -day quality of life. 
Um, and, and I guess one of the things that's that's really hard to hear is that these are not isolated experiences. Mm -hmm. One, you know, the difficulty in getting diagnosed. We actually have a question about diagnosis within the chronic health module because we have heard that we have a sense of the difficulty that it takes. One of the kind of um, anecdotes shared in the communities that I'm in because many, many, many racialized queer women that I know live with fibromyalgia is the app. It takes on average seven years to get diagnosed. That's mm -hmm. a long time to wait for care. That's a long time for things to change for folks. So, you know, you're, you're pointing to something there that we are sometimes, I don't know, hesitant to talk about because we love saying that we're, we're in a public health care system. We're in a public health care system with a whole bunch of asterisks and caveats because it's mm. not actually publicly available for all and there's all of these limitations. The other piece when you're, you know, referencing some of uh, what you read when looking on Google Scholar. And one of the things I have to say is it's important for CBRC to kind of blow up the idea of professionalized researchers. We're a community-based research organization. And, um, you know, I'm not a researcher by training. Uh, I have an environmental studies grad degree. I've just done a lot of work in community. And mm. folks who are on our community advisories and some of our partner organizations, these are folks who are really good at telling us what they're hearing in community and talking about their lived experience and how it connects. Um, but the piece that you, you talked about in terms of that article, it's important to understand how systemic oppression actually lives in our bodies. And we have been able to use frameworks like the social determinants of health, but there's actually things that happen within our bodies itself um, that we don't necessarily talk about all that much. So the two frameworks I might offer to listeners the nerds who want to read more would be the minority stress model, which has been talked about in connection to two SLGBTQ communities. But the one that I really love talking about, Nate has heard me talk about this tons, is allostatic load, which certainly gets talked about in the US around how um, racism actually impacts you like at your cellular level and changes things in your body profoundly. Um, and I think that these frameworks first disrupt the idea that you are personally to blame for your chronic health condition. Um, and sometimes providers make us feel like that, mm. or that you are automatically um, predisposed for particular chronic health conditions. I'm thinking about for me as a South Asian person, I'm told from youth that I'm predisposed to heart conditions and diabetes. We don't really unpack where those are coming from necessarily, and that all of the solutions have to be on the individual level. So public health programs will say, let's get you moving, let's get you walking, let's change your diets, and not say, hey, actually, let's tackle racism, homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. I want to pick up on something that I think a few of you have touched on, and which is, you know, these footnotes that Sebastian noted haven't been taken too seriously. And what I what gets me excited about this study is who's funding it. You know, and, and that's, I mean, you always get, I always get excited when there's money, but that's another conversation. You know, the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force and Public Health Agency of Canada have both put money behind this to, to really give you the ability to go for the scale and gather the research. You know, we have talked many times, I say talked, we have ridiculed <laughs> many times on this show where, you know, some study says, you know, eating a banana makes you gay or whatever. And they've talked to five people and four of them think that that's the case. <laughs> Essentially, the question here is, how many people are you gonna talk to? Are we talking about a sample of 
30, 40 people? Or is it going to be more substantive in hundreds and maybe even thousands? You know, really, that's, I think, for the ambition that I'm getting a sense of with this study, it's going to have to be a bit of a heavy hitting number. So where, where do you think you're, you're aiming for here? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think this is also one of those pieces to really connect the fact of why we do research for action and making sure that when we do our research that we're going to have what we need to be able to go to government, to go to the public and to ask for what's important for community. And part of that is making sure that we have sufficient sample to look at some of the things that we've been asked to look at. Um, and so our goal, do you know what I mean, is at 10,000 people for the survey. And there are tons of two-spirit queer and trans folks across the country um, during hundreds of thousands of us. And so we hope that people participate. We're not gonna limit that. So during, we're certainly not gonna stop. If people wanna do the survey, we're gonna make it available to them. Um, during, and within that, we're hoping that during, during 4,000 people agree to do this biological um, at-home test. So for those who aren't aware in the study, um, during, it's this online survey, we've talked about a bunch of the different questions that you get asked, but you also have this option to um, enter your address and receive a, a kit that will get mailed to that address where you can uh, do a, a finger prick of blood um, and collect some blood onto a card that you ship back to us. And we can then screen that to find out if you've had COVID. Um, and you can also opt in if you want screening for HIV or hepatitis C or syphilis, because we know there's been challenges to access to testing and screening through the pandemic, but also pre-existing to the pandemic too. I think about myself as a, yeah, uh, a young gay boy growing up in the farm uh, in Southern Ontario. Do you know what I mean? I was not a gay men's sexual health clinic in Norfolk County. Um, and so this is a way that we can get um, during those opportunities to people wherever you live in the country, uh, courtesy of Canada Post. So uh, do you know what I mean? It's, uh, I think that we are really welcoming everyone and anyone in our community to participate. And having that sample of during thousands and thousands of, of folks from our community allows us to look at some of those intersections and some of those questions, some of those footnotes, as you're kind of saying, where oftentimes there is just too few people to do things. And that's really what we're hoping to counter with this approach. So it's open, we're crowdsourcing it. If you're listening to the show, please do it. Please pass on the information to somebody else. Well, I will, I will be doing it. Uh, oh, quick, yeah. quick sidebar. Um, when you mentioned growing up on the farm in Southern Ontario, I immediately thought of Sebastian. Oh, I, yes. Uh, yeah, and, and his uh, his pronunciation of farm and car uh, as a result. But that's that's the, the total sidebar there. Um, you know, Actually, I have been very I do curious. have a question, yeah, go ahead. though. Um, is this definitely on a all, all data is good data model? So, for example, you're saying about the blood prick. Like, I know, for example... Uh, that I've, I've, at least as far as I know, I've never been exposed to syphilis or HIV or gonorrhea. I've, I've never had any sexual transmitted diseases. I know that there's a few that can fly under the radar with men's health, and you may not know about it, even though you've had it for years, but you know, whatever. Um, I would give you the blood prick anyway, because sometimes negative data is still good data. You know, if you find out 90% of the blood samples that come back are negative, that's still data. So, I mean, even if somebody is, as far as they know, in perfect health, you still want to hear from them. Yes? Absolutely. Yes. I think for us, we'll be able to look analytically at who opts into the blood sample, and we can do a bit of adjustment statistically for some of those kinds of things. But for us, it's there for everyone. Some people, they might have full confidence, do you know what I mean? That they know what their results will be. And this is a way to get that assurance through that, um, do you know what I mean? But it's not just about trying to find the people who might have these infections, do you know what I mean? We're gonna mm -hmm. support those folks who have reactive results and make sure that they have information about where to go and get um, during proper care for those things. Um, and that's one of the great things 
things about working with a group like CBRC that takes a really peer-based support approach to the work. Um, so yeah, everyone is welcome. You don't need to think that you necessarily have one of those things going on in your life for you to have to choose that uh, that kit is there for everybody. And we meant the yeah, whole yeah. survey, not not just the blood test. The whole, oh yeah, all yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think. It, it, there is this instinct that people have that, you know, they, they only need to participate in a survey if they know they have the issue or if they have information you want. But there, there is this thing that I, I was just really trying to emphasize that sometimes no data is still good data. Yeah. And I mean, all of that data is data really is yeah. the piece, right? And that's why we've tried to label this as our health. Do you know what I mean? It's for all of us. Do you know mm -hmm. We all have health and some of it is better and worse in some dimensions at some times, depending on what's going on, right? It's Canada wide for anyone who lives across the country from coast to coast to coast. And it's a community study, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're not, while we have our interests and our questions and our focus on certain kinds of things, this really is for everybody. So um, during, depend, regardless of what level of privilege you feel, do you know what I mean? regardless of what level of oppression you're experiencing during mean, the study is for you and we want to hear your voice. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, CBRC has leveraged data it's gathered before in similar studies. You know, for example, uh, I think it's referenced that the federal ban on conversion therapy relied in part, uh, well, first of all, on the fact that the World Health Organization called it torture, but also relied in part on uh, data gathered by the CBRC. You know, so we are seeing real evidence-based approach from government. And I think this is really about creating that body of evidence to be able to make more effective programming and honestly, better use of federal tax dollars. You know, if, if we're taking more targeted approaches, more uh, well thought out, you know, uh, ways of, of providing service, um, then that must be more effective government. You know, if we're more informed of, of who we're trying to reach and how best to reach them and, and what best to focus on, I think that that's, uh, that can only be, only be good news. And I, I hope that once the information is gathered and analyzed in places where there is need for more support, is need for better access, um, that, those, that those recommendations are, are gonna be followed. Is there gonna be recommendations? How is this data going to be communicated. I assume it's not going to be a massive Excel sheet with all the, you know, the information in it. Um, I'd read that. Yeah, you would read that. But yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, how are you going to get the key information out there? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think during the part that always keeps me up at night, to be honest, around these things is how best can we use the data? You're right. I mean, we've used data collected with CBRC to advocate against the conversion therapy bans, not just at the federal level, but also at, during um, other levels of jurisdiction. Um, and that was because there was no data on how many people in our community were experiencing it, who was experiencing it, and who was really um, bearing that burden. Um, and so this is why we provide data is to fill those gaps because otherwise they get filled in with rhetoric during and, and, um, and untruths. So in terms of how we'll work with this data, I mean, it obviously takes a while for us to be able to analyze um, everything that we get. And so this will be a project that continues for years, right? Um, this is certainly not gonna be a one and done shop where we're gonna say, okay, here's what we learned and we're moving on. Um, this will be a fundamental source of data for the health of our communities across the country. And it will also let us to some of the earlier conversation, evaluate as things change over time, what's changing for our communities and what isn't, um, and for who in our communities and for who not. Um, we have some experience sharing data through data visualizations in online websites. 
a really easy, nice way for people who don't want to read rows and rows of Excel, for example, um, and just want to look at a picture to kind of visually and graphically represent what's going on. So that's one way that we kind of try to speak back to community. Uh, we do a lot of work to create policy briefs and other kinds of reports that are targeted to government audiences, public health audiences, health service providers, doing community organizations, etc. Um, we also do lots of work to try and connect with partners who have specific needs for data. So if there's folks that are doing advocacy work and they want to come to us and say, do you have any information on how many of us exist? Do you have any information on Dwayne, what's going on for our community? We can do that kind of custom work. And so that's really the partnerships that we're always interested in and people can reach out to. And then, of course, we will do some of the academic peer reviewed literature. It's an important standard um, during that is looked at in certain policy circles during certain decision making circles and so we'll make sure that this stuff gets out there and that's a way for us to also help from a canadian point of view with some of the conversations globally around what's going on with our um during queer and trans um during and two-spirit folks across the world so i think there's a lot of different strategies that we'll take in that um, and those will roll out later this year and, and into coming years from that um, and then one of the big things that cbrc puts on um, is the summit um, this is an event that's been happening for um, nearly 20 years now um, there's virtual ways of accessing this and this is a uh, the largest 2s lgbtqi plus um, kind of community health conference that happens in the country it happens in the fall and people can find out more about it if they go to cbrc and they follow or sign up for the newsletter um, but it's a chance to really get together with a bunch of the rest of us to talk about what's going on in our communities um, and what are some of those various issues so um, i don't know Anna, if you've got other ideas uh, or thoughts about how we're sharing some of this yeah i mean i think you've touched on the piece around a priority uh, on data democratization, because one of the things that kind of I've heard in, in the months and months leading up to this with community organizations and some community leaders, particularly those to LGBTQQIA plus folks who come from racialized backgrounds or are BIPOC is a kind of like distrust or mistrust or lack of trust with what happens when government asks for our data. And some of those questions extend into asking for biological specimens. So it's been really important for us to be very, very, very clear and explicit that when we say our health, I mean, we're talking about our collective health. And when, when we're talking about the, the data that's going to be produced, we want it to live in a, in a kind of collective way. Um, we've also been talking about, you know, like very precise uh, and community specific, what we call KTE. We don't have to use that word all the time, but just kind of reporting back to community, right? In the form of webinars or social media shareables. It's something CBRC has done a lot of because we want to be able to get information to folks in um, as accessible a way as possible and also a little bit of an eye-catching way because not everybody again is like Sebastian who wants to read rows and rows of Excel. Sometimes people want to see infographics or, or and then they want to read the report afterwards. So I think we'll see a whole bunch of different ways of that happening. Um, for me, because my, my kind of area of focus is on chronic health, I'm, I'm really keen to talk to some of the organizations that are already thinking about uh, how they want to change their chronic health work to be a little bit more focused on 2SLGBTQQI plus folks, um, but also to community groups who are the only queer or trans game in town, and they're trying to figure out ways to advocate with local government um, or with a funder. And, you know, outside of CBRC, I do stuff in the suburbs, and it's a challenge. So I think a lot about people who are my, my peers and um, how they would want to be able to use this data. So we want to get it into people's hands, but in a form and format that is the most usable for them. Well, I am I am team infographic uh, all the way, and I'm, I'm sure many of our, our audience is as well. I cannot implore people enough, um, you know, it, 
to to take you know a little bit of time and 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 you know do this i i will be doing the blood sample um and uh, the whole hog you can find it at cbrc that's community based research center so cbrc.net forward slash our underscore health cbrc our health i imagine if you googled cbrc our health uh, it would also pop up. So if you're if you're not you don't have a pen and a pen you know pen handy, um, you know CBRC, uh, you know our health and it should uh, should be able to find it. Um, uh, well, I'm on the edge of my seat and hopefully I don't fall off between now and and when this information starts to to roll in, um, which you know reasonably takes a bit of time. You know we we you know it's not going to be next week that we have you back for uh, for the results. Um, but I am I am excited. This is this is absolutely massive for queer health and and well being. So it was very exciting. Uh, any closing comments, uh, Sebastian? I mean, I I'm really keen on discovering whatever the surprising answers are. Like if we discover that there are no lesbian identified women with tinnitus, like things like that. Like just like what? How, how did that happen? Like that kind of thing fascinates me. But if you come across anything with an r-squared value of 0.3 or above call me at home day or night i don't care you can wake me up it's fine that that's how excited i am about data we love it yeah i mean and we love people who are excited about these things and we especially like people who are willing to take 30 60 minutes out of their day out of their lives to do this it's not a lot of direct benefit and we can only offer a small honorarium for people for doing the survey for people who choose to do the blood kits as well um but it means a lot to us and it means a lot to other folks in the community so um thank you my heart goes out to everyone who who helps us out in that way and we're definitely happy to come back <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you, you will be at the top of our list of folks to, to bring back in. Um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and, and you know, really talking about the important scale and, and, and potential impact of this. Uh, we will be back just after this. Um, yeah, we'll come back after the, the next song that's playing. Thank you again for, for yeah. joining us.
Welcome back to Cancria, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. I am Sebastian. That was Find Out by Tune Gibbs and our extensive interview on the CBRC. Don't mm-hmm. forget, if you go to cbrc.ca, you can find the study nice and easy. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of leave off on is a pretty shocking story out of the States. And that is a a man has threatened the Merriam-Webster dictionary, like with a knife, no, with, with a bomb. But oh, like, I mean, I think it takes a certain level of stupid to threaten the dictionary. So okay, yeah, just yeah. to take it up here, I um, mean, really, we're talking about the headquarters of yeah, the dictionary. Yeah. Like, it's not that he had a dictionary and he put it on the table and he just and was like, it off "Oh, you!" Started yelling at it. Yeah, I, mean, I have threatened my own dictionaries. I mean, like that's that's a given. It's uh, I regularly yell at my computer. So I yeah. mean, I I if that were the story, I would be very sympathetic. If that were it, just like you know. How am I supposed to find words in the dictionary if I don't know how to spell them? Like, mm-hmm. I, I can see somebody getting very angry about that. Words that start with a fuss sound, but they're spelled with a PH, you know? Like, just, yeah, start yelling so at your dictionary. The guy sent a message to Mary Webster, and he said, and I quote you, your headquarters should be shot up and bombed. It mm-hmm. is sickening that you have caved to the cultural Marxist anti-science, and there is a slur there, agenda and altered the definition of female as part of the left's efforts to corrupt and degrade the English language and deny reality. Your evil Marxists should all be killed. It would be poetic justice for someone to storm the offices. Now, following that, uh, Merriam-Webster evacuated all of their uh, Mm US-based headquarters Notably, they didn't evacuate anywhere outside of the U.S. because no one else has threatened the dictionary. Right, yes. Um, only, only so far, the Americans. Um, so, that you know, Meryl Webster essentially defines female, which applies to more than just humans, mm-hmm. as related to or being the sex that typically has the capacity to bear young or produce eggs. Mm-hmm. You know, so far, that makes sense. It's definitely, it's, it's example is yeah. a monarch butterfly. Okay. <laughs> so it's like, you know, is this uh, is this the war on gender or is this just, you know, well, threatening here's the, the dictionary? Thing. So uh, dictionary writing is actually a weirdly political thing. Uh, so, for example, the, the 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 case for how dictionaries are politics, English and French actually have the two strongest cases for that. For the longest time, all entries in the English dictionary uh, were given the definition and pronunciation relative to how people spoke English specifically in Oxford. And if you didn't, which just happens to be where the dictionary was published. And of course, it just happened to be convenient that the people who lived in Oxford were speaking correctly and everybody else who was not speaking uh, in Oxford was speaking incorrectly. So there's a weird moment of like people realizing like, oh, dictionaries are actually kind of political, aren't they? But like, that's why we now have multiple entries. So Let's say you do have an incredibly conservative traditional definition of literally anything. That's probably going to be entry number one because that's going to be the most common use. This, if there is a new use or a new definition that's entered into the dictionary, it's usually a lower number. And so long as you're not removing 
the older, more conservative one, so long as that older, more conservative one is still in use. So like my favorite example is the, uh, up until about the 1950s, the traditional English word for person who does not properly clean their home, if you remember what that word is. Oh, is that vagabond? Uh, a slut. Oh. A slut is a person that, who doesn't properly clean their home. Well, up until I, the 1950s. I, I, am, I am definitely one of those then. <laughs> so it, it's, that is the original use of that term. And, and in some dictionaries, it's there, but because it's fallen out of common use, it's been mm-hmm. removed from a lot of dictionaries. So because it's no longer in common use, it's gone. Because these more uh, traditional conservative definitions of male and female are still in use, uh, they're still in the dictionary. So it's just an issue of like, are you removing it or are you replacing? If they were replacing it, even I would be like, and I'm I'm very open minded and very down with everything. I'd be like, oh, yeah. I mean, you need those definitions in there for when you're talking about you know hens and cocks. You know, like there there there's there's a use for those definitions, even if in human society you're going to be a lot more open minded. Uh, and I think it's just an issue of, I don't think this guy knows how dictionaries work, basically, that there's yeah. multiple entries. And so long as you're not removing the old ones, who cares? You could just now, say, I don't agree with that use. And there you go. I think he may have underestimated the power of the dictionary here. Yeah. <laughs> Merriam-Webster has a distinct opportunity for when you look up the word stupid in the uh-huh. dictionary, um, Jeremy Hansen, 34, of Rossmore, Orange County, may well pop up uh, in the dictionary. Um, you know, you, you don't. You know, who threatens a dictionary? I mean, it's it is a it is a head scratcher. That is for sure. All I right. mean, you say that, but I bring it up uh, the history of dictionaries and the the war with Oxford, as well as the war with uh, La Rousse in Paris. There actually was uh, it came to blows, but it was just fisticuffs. It wasn't a bomb. So, I mean, like, dictionary writing is weirdly actually pretty political, historically as well. The it's, it's FBI a weird, yeah. found him, charged him, um, and he's uh, under strict orders not to send any more threatening communications. So, yeah. um, you know, the thesaurus is uh, checking its mail very carefully today. <laughs> um, all right, that's all we've got time for. We are playing out with No Return by Shades Lawrence, and uh, I've been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. This song is about Canada I'm here to brag about the motherland I'm here to stand and say There's no other plan No return But take me back Take me back Take me back No return but take me back to West Africa No return but take me back Take me back Take me back to West Africa The motherland No return Though I learned, hold the land with a thirst Gold sand, turn time back Back to the first land I learned Africa, I yearn, no return Though I learned, hold the land with a thirst Gold sand, turn time back Back to the first land I learned Africa, I yearn, I wanna go back but there's no return, there's no way back, no way through the burn of slavery, I learned the way twice. Though my turn was to run through these lands without thought. No concern for the homelands of people that earn, for people that turn, no different thoughts of what it is to be a Canadian, to be a Canuck, like a Jamaican. I'm both, I was born where I'm so scared of people saying, 
I don't deserve patois, I'm not rad enough, I'm faking from now on, I'm waiting until it sees clear, people in boats hold a dear to new land for them, new plans for them, refugees that hold dear, escape with no fear, Syria, West Africa, Nigeria, Cameroon, I hold dear, I hold dear, I hold dear, I hold dear, how do I reconcile these loves, the land's not mine, I'm not scared, I won't belong, the water runs, it's not mine, when people's hearts shine, they volunteer, and build community, no cause to me, just be exist. I stole my dreams for property to build with family. From now on, I'm standing still. I'm planning, see, I ran through everything that's dear to me. Now be you and hear the beat. No return, though I learn. Hold the land with a thirst. Gold sand, turn time back. Back to the first land I learned. Africa, I yearn. No return. Though I learn, hold the land with a thirst, gold sand, turn time back, back to the first land I learn, Africa I yearn, there's nothing different, light skin and lit kids, something cryptic, each line scripted, listen what's given, never miss, never slip, wish what's hidden was evident, less eloquent etiquette are elements, I'm reticent, to call myself an immigrant, listen kid, there's something different, half white, Privilege, I missed it. Windshield included, we all the truth is. Cell is lucid, cedar moose. Long as God held, long as forests spread out. Northern Ontario, been there once, that's real where the forest. So still, there's a love song in Canada. Land of my birds, plans are heard, no words. Each reservation expands. Land back, sand turns, stands of fur. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a dream deferred. Hourglass demand turns to debate streams heard firsthand. The plains speak, mountain peaks, every lake, river dreams. Remember the land of your birth, homeland, the worst that can happen is someone says you don't belong. Remember the land you love, stay strong. West Africa, take me back. Take me back. West Africa, take me back. Take me back to West Africa. The motherland.